You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Today we are reading 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. And I'll just dive right in. Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's a little movement going on uh, in the modern church. There's a lot of little movements, but there's one in particular I want to talk about. And it's this attempt to separate the work of Jesus from the teachings of Jesus. To separate the work of Jesus from the teachings of Jesus, or another way you can put it is to separate the beliefs of Christianity from the commands of Christianity. And uh, here's what I mean. By By the work of Jesus, what I'm talking about is things like Jesus became a human being. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. These are all beliefs that we have about Christianity. Uh, And by the teachings of Jesus or commands of Christianity, I mean things like love one another or be servant to all or let your light shine before others and things like that. And so the first category is about uh, the work of Jesus is about things that you believe, facts about the faith that you believe. And the second category is about commands that the Christian faith has given us to obey. And, um, and then there are people who overemphasize one over the other, and there are other people who overemphasize one over the other. Um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Dan preached a sermon, and he talked about how faith without works is dead. Um, and, and that was from James chapter 2. And he was saying, don't just believe things, but actually obey the commands. Don't just have this information in your minds, but actually live them out. So that's talking about, you know, making sure you're not just having the work of Jesus, but you're actually living out the teachings of Jesus. But I would say the other, the flip side is true too. Um, There are folks who underemphasize the work of Jesus, and they overemphasize, I would say, the teachings of Jesus. And here's some examples of things that they might say. Just some examples. They might say something like, I don't know if Jesus really rose from the dead, and what they're talking about is the work of Jesus. But I definitely think he was a great teacher. And so they're talking about the teachings of Jesus. Or they may say something like, you know what, theology and doctrine can be divisive. So we shouldn't focus on these things. We should just focus on being good people. And maybe some of you have have said similar things. And sometimes the heart behind it is well-intentioned. But what they're doing is they're separating the work of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, how he died for our sins. And you can even say, separate the, the, the supernatural, miraculous parts of the faith with the practical, hands-on commands of the faith. But in this passage that we just read in First Peter, Peter does something kind of interesting, and that is he intricately connects the work of Jesus with the teachings of Jesus. In other words, he's saying you can't have one without the other. You need both. And how does he do this? I'm going to look into this passage again. In verse 22, Peter commands us to love one another. And in the rest of the passage, you'll notice that's the central command, love one another. In the rest of the passage, Peter explains why we are to love one another. And he constantly goes back to this concept of the gospel. Notice this repeated word, the word, word. Okay, that's the word, word. In verse 23, Peter says, 
we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And he goes on talking about this word of God. And he says, the word of the Lord remains forever. And then uh, he defines what this word is. This word is the good news that was preached to you. It seems like Peter, he, he mentions this word of God as the way through which we are to love one another. Through the word of God, we are able to love one another. And, you know, when we think about this word of God, oftentimes today, when we hear that phrase, we have our, our, our churchianity, you know, clickers go on, and we think Bible. Word of God is Bible. But in this passage, I don't think he's talking about the Bible. In fact, a lot of times when you read the New Testament, uh, when you see the phrase word of God or word of the Lord, it's not talking about a collection of sacred writings. It's not talking about the Bible. In the book of Acts, for example, it often says things like, and the word of God began to increase, or the word of God multiplied. And it's not saying that people were printing Bibles. What it's saying is that the gospel message was being shared, and more and more people were, ner- were learning about this gospel message. And that's how Peter's using this. And he's very explicit in verse 25. He says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's talking about the word multiple times, and he's saying this word is the good news. In gospel, that's our churchy word for good news. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And so if I were to summarize this passage, this whole passage, I would say I think the point is love one another because of the gospel. Love one another because of the gospel. In other words, if the gospel is true, then we should love one another. Or to put it in another way, the way we obey the teachings of Jesus, love one another, that's a teaching of Jesus, is by believing the work of Jesus, the gospel. The way we obey the teachings of Jesus, love one another, is by believing the work of Jesus, which is the gospel. And this is very important because there are a lot of people, as I mentioned before, they try to follow the teachings of Jesus without the gospel. They're just saying, you know, I'm a relatively good person, but I want to be a better person. So I'm going to read this person. I'm going to read this person. I'm going to read Jesus as one of my many people I'm going to read. And he's a great teacher, and I'm going to follow his teachings. But all of Jesus' early followers, they didn't view Jesus that way. All of Jesus' early followers, they viewed the work of Jesus, his coming, becoming a human being, his death, his resurrection, as central to following his teachings. And so my question today that I want to talk about is, how does the gospel empower us to love one another? How does the gospel empower us to love one another? Well, in our passage, uh, Peter talks about a variety of ways, but I want to just highlight three different ways that the gospel empowers us to love one another. Let's read verse 22 one more time. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's the command again, love one another. And notice why we love one another. Our souls have been purified. The gospel empowers us to love one another because the gospel purifies. The gospel purifies. In an air purifier, um, recently I've been doing a lot of research on random things. That's what you do when you have babies. And one of the things you research is air purifiers. And uh, what an air purifier does is it takes the air around it and removes its contaminants. And that's what the gospel does in our hearts, in our souls. The gospel takes the air around our souls, the spiritual air, and identifies and removes the spiritual contaminants. In verse 22, Peter uses the example of of love. He's saying the gospel has purified you, and because it's purified you, now you have a pure heart. 
So now you are enabled, empowered to love one another. And this order is, is key because when he says, having purified your souls, this is past tense. He's saying this has already happened. Our souls are purified already. And then he gives us a present day, a present tense command, love one another earnestly. So that's our task now. And so Peter's not saying, you know, love one, an- love one another earnestly so that you can have a pure heart. He's saying love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's saying you already have this pure heart. So now what you got to do is just allow your pure heart to work its way out in, in action by loving one another. And this verse shows us how the gospel is, is different from, I would suggest, any other belief system. Uh, think about it. If, if you just explore different belief systems, what is the motivation for loving one another? What's the motivation for loving one another? If you take atheism, for example, atheism is uh, the belief that there is no God. Uh, what is the motivation for loving one another? Well, I mean, the motivation is biological. You would say that, you know, we have developed these moral consciences because over time, uh, species with moral consciences have a better chance of survival than species without moral consciences. So you would say something like that. And, and so as a result, we have this moral conscience, and so we love one another. But what is that really? What is that really? All that really is, is we are loving people so that we can get something out of it. We are loving others out of a love for ourselves, right? Because we want our species to, to survive, so we have love for others. And so that is a self-oriented love. And how about other religions? How, how do, if we look at other religions, I'm not going to summarize every religion. That would take a while. But why do we love others? I mean, you can fill in the blank. We love others so that maybe we can go to heaven. Or we love others so that we can be reincarnated into a better, higher creature. Or we can we love others so that we can achieve enlightenment. But notice, you know, there's a, there's a pattern here. We love others so that we can get something out of it. Whether it's heaven, reincarnation, whatever. We love others so we can get something out of it. And it's the same thing, I would say. We love others because we love ourselves. The old preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he once wrote, There is no more true virtue in a man thus loving his friends merely from self-love than there is in self-love itself. And here's what he's saying. You may be loving other people, but if the reason why you're loving other people is because you just love yourself and it's to your advantage to love other people, he's saying that's no better than just being selfish. Your others-oriented love is just uh, an outcome or symptom of your love for yourself. And, or as Jesus puts it, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. I have this diagram up here uh, just to try to illustrate this a little bit. So we have the love for self, okay? And it's, it what's, it's uh, what makes the world go round. Everyone is born with this and everyone lives this out. Regardless of people's religions or philosophies, this is automatic. We love ourselves and we might do great things. We might do good things. But for the most part, we do those things because, you know, we want people to like us, we want recognition, or, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why we do good things. And the love for self has cursed society for as long as anyone can remember. So how do we get rid of this love for self? How do we move beyond this love for self so that we have a genuine love for others? How do we do that? What I would say, the only way is through the gospel, The only way is through the gospel. The gospel is the good news 
that Jesus, who is outside of the whole system, and here's the next slide, Jesus is outside the whole system, and he has by nature a love for others sort of personhood in the Trinity. They are in this relationship where they're constantly loving one another. He has by nature this love for others orientation. He came into our selfish world, and what did he do? He died for us and rose from the dead. And so think about this. For most of history, people were driven by this love for self. And then along comes God himself, the creator of the world. And what he does is for the first time in human history, he shows there is a human being who loves others before himself. So much so that he dies for his enemies. And at the cross, while he's dying for his enemies, he asks God to forgive those who just killed him. So that is an others-oriented love, an unadulterated, pure love. And, 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 And this is what happens. If you understand this, Okay, this is the gospel message. If you understand this and you receive this, then you, then you start to have this transformation where this others-oriented love starts to take root in your own life and this love for self starts to wither away and die out. I would, I would suggest the only way to experience or to manifest this others-oriented love in your own life is to experience that yourself, to experience someone else loving you the way it was meant to be, the way God designed it. And so the Bible uses all sorts of ways to describe this transformation. The Bible says that, you know, God takes away our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. The Bible says we are, we are born again. The Bible says we are a new creation. The Bible says we have been raised with Christ. And all this language is to describe this phenomenon of how we had this old self-love and that, that is slowly dying, and now we have this new others-oriented love through Jesus. Um, one way I can sort of analogy that I can sort of use to describe this is imagine you have loads of financial debt. You're just, you, uh, just horrible with your money-making decisions, so you have loads of debt. And for as long as you remember, you've been struggling to pay off this debt, and you've made no headway at all. And, and there's all sorts of people who are giving you good advice. Oh, here's this book to read. Or here's this class to take. Or here's a budget. Let me help you budget better. But you just feel like none of it works. Okay, so one day, a wealthy person comes along and he says, Hey, you know what? I'm going to pay off your debt just for no reason, just because I like you, uh, or just because I, I'm a loving person, and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. Okay, what, what would happen? Okay, this would change everything. Everything in your life would change. Your identity would change. Your purpose would change. Your perspective would change. Your outlook would change. Everything would be... So like instead of being concerned with how am I going to pay off my bills this month? You know, how am I going to eat food this month? Instead of being concerned with that, now, ideally, you're thinking, how can I bless other people? How can I give generously to help those who are in need? So your whole mentality shifts. And that is a little glimpse of what the gospel, the good news is, is when we understand the gospel, we are set free from this way of doing these, this way of doing things, this, this way of just being addicted to these, oh, how can I do this and how can I do this? this these habits and this way of thinking, this mentality that we've been stuck in for so long, the gospel frees us from that so that we can love others in ways that we never thought possible. I would suggest that every other belief system can only offer you advice or tips or instructions or suggestions on things you should do. Just You can do this, do this, do this. You know, they offer, I would say, different ways of living. They offer different ways of thinking. 
But the gospel doesn't just offer you different ways of living. The gospel makes you a different person. The gospel doesn't just offer you different ways of living. The gospel makes you a different person. It doesn't operate at the behavior level. It doesn't operate at the mind level. It operates at the identity level. So that you are fundamentally a different person. So that you're enabled to love the way no one has ever loved before. So unlike other belief systems, we love not so that we can achieve anything, because we already have what we need. We love because we have been freed already. We have been purified already. And so instead of being self-loving creatures, we've been transformed into other loving creatures. I'm going to reread 22, verse 22, because it's a part of a, a longer sentence that I didn't finish, and sometimes uh, people who read the Bible are notorious for just reading half sentences and thinking they have the whole picture. So here's 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so we've covered the first reason why the gospel empowers us to love one another, because it's purified us. Now I'll say here's the second reason. The gospel abides in us. The gospel abides in us. The purification process, I would say, is a one-time event. Once you were dirty, and now you're clean. And once you were dead, and now you're alive. Once you were blind, now you see. And so that's a one-time event. But I would say, and and that's why we are baptized one time. Uh, We experience this one-time event, and that's to represent this this purification process. However, there's an an abiding process, and this is not a one-time event. This is a constant, everyday event. And that is why we, we have communion at, at the front of the room. We'll be taking that later. We take communion every week at our church. It's a regular thing because we are constantly reminding ourselves that Christian life is not just a one-time thing, but it's a continual thing because the gospel is constantly at work in us, constantly living and abiding in us. Uh, you notice today I was up here uh, for the child dedication. Our baby is three months old today. Not today, uh, three months in a week. Um, today and um, for the first three years of our marriage, my wife and I we lived by ourselves. And uh, and starting from about three months ago, we had this child, and this child started to abide in our home. And because this child abided in our home, uh, our lives started to change. There's little changes. For example, we had to buy things that we never bought before: diapers, cribs, you know, swaddles. We bought things, and then there's big changes. Like our sleep schedule changes, okay? Our hanging out with friends schedule changes. And a, a pretty big change on uh, my wife VK's part is she sort of took a hiatus from work. We call that maternity leave. And she spent a lot of time breastfeeding and, you know, pumping milk. And so there's a lot of changes that happened because this baby started abiding in our home. And, you know, we started... Doing, we started researching things and reading up on things like air purifiers that we never really cared much for. And we started to, like, read all these forums about, the, you know, these moms have, there's a lot of these forums, and it's a whole new world. <laughs> and we're having conversations with one another all the time, like, how do we do this? And this happened, so what do we do next? And this doctor said this, but this person said this. And so we're having all these conversations. All that is to say, our lives have changed. And I would suggest, when the gospel abides in your soul, your life should change. Your life should change in all sorts of ways you never imagined before. Every single aspect of your life should change. How you relate to your friends changes. 
how you relate to your work changes, how you spend to, your time changes, how you view money or sex or politics. or All of these things start to change. You start to make a lot of sacrifices that you didn't make before. You start to feel challenged in a way you didn't feel challenged before. And it's a lifelong process. And it can be hard. The gospel is not just about being born again. Being born again is just the beginning. And it's the beginning of this lifelong process. Uh, a, little week, a little over a week ago, Match Day happened. I don't know if you're familiar with Match Day. Uh, match Day is um, this pretty, it's pretty interesting from a sociological perspective because um, most people in America, they have no clue what Match Day is. But there's a small subset of the population. It's like the whole world for them. But anyways, Match Day is, if you're in medical school and it's your fourth year, you're about to finish med school, um, you apply to different places to, so that you, they offer you a job, hopefully. And then on the day, uh, there's a day in March every year where the, you find out where you have been matched. And so uh, after you graduate med school, you, can, you move somewhere and you start working at this hospital. And it's a huge deal. People who are matched, they, they, they put up these things on social media and they get a lot of likes. It's up there. It's I mean, it's uh, not as much as getting engaged, maybe, but it's more than, let's say, you meet a celebrity. It's like that sort of status of getting that many likes. But anyways, so match day happens. So imagine, okay, someone, he, uh, he or she is in med school, and he or she has been working really hard, and finally finds out, I've been matched to my number one choice. I'm going to the school after I graduate. I can finally have these letters at the end of my name. I can be a doctor, okay? And imagine... Fall comes around, and they never show up for work. And you go looking around for them, and you find out they're still in med school, and they're still taking classes. And you ask, why are you taking classes? Do you, do you, have, you don't have enough debt or something? Like, that's, that's a very weird phenomenon. And why, and why is that weird? Because you think, with all of their efforts, going through, you know, med school, getting master hospital, you think that they did it so that they could be a doctor, Right? Because that was their dream. That's what they wanted to do. But if they never cared about being a doctor, if they just went through the med school process just to, you know, get a degree and just so they can put something on social media, just so people can like their posts, and after that, they actually don't care about being a doctor, that reveals they're just going through the motions. And they never cared about being a doctor in the first place. And that's very odd, but I would suggest many Christians do a very similar thing. Our match day equivalent is deciding we want to be a Christian, we want to dedicate our lives to Jesus, but I want to suggest that match day, when we're matched up to our relation with Jesus, is just day one of a lifelong adventure. And a lot of people, they make this decision, but they never follow through. They make this decision, and they never follow through. And it shows they misunderstood everything. They never understood the whole point. All they did was, I'm going to get wet in a, in a tank of water, and I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to have people pray for me, and I'm going to peace out. And what that shows is they never understood anything at all. They, they, they misunderstood the whole thing. It doesn't matter how ecstatic you were, how emotional you were on the day you were, quote-unquote, saved. What matters, was, what matters is the gospel never abided in you, because if the gospel not only purifies you, but abides in you, then your life should change. Your habits should change. Your priorities should change. Martin Luther once wrote, I must hearken to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, 
but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. And this is the gospel. To wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Okay? And I, I think, I hope he's being metaphorical and not, you know, um, actually literal about this. But what does this mean practically? What does it mean to beat the gospel into our heads um, continually? Let's say, for example, let's just get very practical. What does it mean for the gospel to abide in us? Let's say somebody is talking smack about us. Okay, maybe it's a relative, a friend, someone who we don't even know. We just met on the street. We're driving along the road. Let's say someone is talking smack about us. What happens? Okay, maybe we get angry. Maybe we get bitter. Uh, maybe we get upset. So what should we do? What does it mean in this scenario to take the gospel and beat it into our heads continually? It means we remember the gospel. What is the gospel? That at one point in time, people talked smack about Jesus. So much so that they were falsely accusing him, not even behind his back, but in his face in the court of law. And then he was killed for it. Right? He was crucified because people falsely accused him and killed him. So what does that do? And, and then on the cross, while he was doing that, what, he forgave those who killed him. So when we, when we recognize this gospel, when we let this gospel sink into our minds, when we allow, allow this gospel to be beaten into our heads continually, we love Jesus a little bit more. And then a little bit of this anger, a little bit of this, of this bitterness dies. And a little bit of this love for others grows. That's what, that's what happens when the gospel abides in us. Here's another example. Let's say you're tempted to give in to an unhealthy addiction. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or pornography. or You have all sorts of addictions. I'm not, you can fill in the blank. You're tempted to give in to this unhealthy addiction. Maybe you've, you've struggled with this in the past and something has triggered it again. So what should we do? I would say the same thing. We take the gospel that's abiding in us and beat it into our heads continually. And what, what is the gospel? At one point in time, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted. There were 40 days he was tempted in the desert and uh, in the garden right before he died. He was tempted again. And what was, was the temptation? He was tempted to not die on the cross, right? And, and, but he, what did he do? He resisted those temptations and he kept marching onward to the cross. And then he rose from the grave. He rose from the dead, having victory over the grave, showing that victory over sin is possible. So that when you cannot face temptations, you can know that Jesus faced temptations. And he, by raised from the dead, he conquered sin and death. And so when we remember that, we let that sink in. Remember that gospel sinking in, the gospel abiding us sinking in. And then we can say, you know what? Jesus defeated sin and death, and I have new life. So now I can defeat temptations in my own life. A stagnant spiritual life. I would suggest, is a sign that the gospel is not truly abiding in us. Maybe it's purified us at one point in time, but it's not truly abiding us because if the gospel abides in us, then we should see this activity. We should see this motion, this dynamics. We should see victory. Sometimes, you know, as seasoned Christians, if you've been walking in your faith for a while, you can call yourself a quote-unquote seasoned Christian. And, uh, Sometimes when we talk about, when we share a story with others, you know, how we became a Christian or how God has changed our life, what we're often doing is we're saying, before we were saved, we lived this way and this way and this way. But now that we're saved, we don't do this and do this and do this. And I think that's great. But I want to suggest sometimes we need more of, not just before you were saved, 
But before last year, I was like this, and now I'm like this. In other words, if the gospel is truly abiding in you, then your story of transformation isn't just pre-salvation and then post-salvation. It should be every day. It should be all the time. And so more often than just ask, saying, you know, before I was saved, I was like this, and now after I saved, I like this, and before I had this haircut, and now I, I have a clean-shaven haircut, or whatever. Now we should be asking things like, asking ourselves, how have I experienced victory over sin this past year? Not just a long time ago. How have I experienced new victories over sin in the past year? Or what has God been teaching me this week? Or what is God calling me to do at this moment right now? Loving one another isn't just, you know, before you used to not love one another and now you love one another. It's a gradual process that grows over time. And I want to suggest we should be loving one another more today than we did a year ago. And we should be loving one another more a year from now than we do today. Because the gospel doesn't just purify us, but it's continuously abiding in us and shaping us. And we should see this continual see our sin die, see our fruit grow sort of dynamic. Let's keep going. First Peter 1 Peter 1.24. Here Peter quotes Isaiah 40 and he says, All flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter, he's quoting Isaiah, and what he's doing, he's, he's comparing two things. The first thing is the transience of humanity, and the second thing is the permanence of the gospel. The transience of the humanity and the permanence of the gospel. He's saying, the word of the Lord remains forever. So not only does the gospel purify, not only does the gospel abide, but the gospel remains. In other words, although you sometimes may feel like grass, you may feel like flowers, you may feel like you wither away, sometimes you feel like you're not that loving, you can take confidence and you can take hope in the fact that the word of the Lord remains forever. Here's the thing, no matter how hard we try to have these continuous victories over sin, we will fall short. Maybe you're on a streak, you're on a winning streak, you're like the Houston Rockets or something like that, you're on a winning streak, but one day you will lose, you will fall short. And it gets to be almost embarrassing sometimes, you know, you're in community group, let's say you fall short over and over and again, sometimes it gets embarrassing, you're in community group and you're doing prayer requests again and you, you know, you're trying to think of something different to say because the last five times you said the same thing, you know, I don't know if you've ever, I've been there. Um, it's almost like going to a restaurant and you have the same waiter and you go, the regular, I'm getting the regular, you know. And when we have one of these phases, you know, sometimes we start to wonder, have I really been purified? Is the gospel really abiding in me? Or sometimes we might even ask a more fundamental question. Does this Christianity thing even work? Is this Christianity thing just a placebo effect? You know, I've been there a few times um, just to be... This is my vulnerable part of my sermon, okay? Um, for me, a lot of my struggles have centered around being a good husband and being a good father. Being a good husband and being a good father. And, um, you know, there are a lot of goals I set in my life. You know, I want to be this kind of person. I want to do this in life. And, and most of those goals, I feel like I'm making headway. You know, sometimes I, I have ups and downs. But in the areas of being a good husband and being a good father, I mean, there are weeks when I feel like I make zero headway. And, uh, and, and sometimes I just feel like I'm forever glued to square one. 
I don't know if any of you relate to that sort of feeling. And a few years ago, VK and I had a huge fight, and I asked her permission to share this, and so she was fine with me sharing this. But as it is with a lot of fights, um, you know, uh, I spend a good amount of time defending myself. That's stage one, okay? And then stage two is we, we sort of we finish the fight, and we sort of go our separate places for a while, and we sort of stew over, you know, how could they say that? How could they say that? And then stage three is, at least for me, I sort of feel the weight of my sin. I feel the weight of what I did. And then there's two directions that can happen uh, in, in those scenarios. Sometimes I repent and I and believe and try to reconcile. Or you can choose to wallow in your sin for a bit longer and, let, uh, and allow self-condemnation and self-hate and just these all sorts of negative feelings to build up. And so this time that happened. And, and I was just in this emotional dump. Um, and, uh, and this is another stage after that. I'm not going to go into details. But after that, there's a time of reconciliation. I recommend that. It's, reconciliation is great. Okay, but anyways, I was in this emotional dump at this time, and uh, I was in a car, and I just wrote VK an email on my phone. And I, because sometimes I don't know how to talk during those times, so I just write emails. And so this is what I wrote. I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read her straight through. I'm sorry about my attitude in the car today. I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I know I can't blame my circumstances for the way I've been behaving lately. I think it's just so upsetting for me to see myself be like this. I really hate the way I've been living. I don't know how I got here. I hate it a lot. I hate that I waste so much time. I hate that I have bad cholesterol. And just a caveat, I didn't have bad cholesterol. I recently went to the doctor, and he says I have slightly high triglycerides. That's what he said, but... Um, I hate that I'm so fake in ministry. I hate that I don't have close friends. I hate that I feel so aimless and directionless in life. I hate that I feel like I'm constantly dragging you down. I hate that I'm so forgetful. I hate that I'm so careless with money. I hate that I don't make any money. And that's another lie. I did make money, but it was just in comparison to her, I didn't make as much money. And anytime you get upset at me for something, I hate my life even more. I think that's why I try to escape. Sometimes I escape by sleeping or by playing games or by playing basketball. Yesterday I watched a movie. I just don't feel like I know how to face my problems and try to live a normal life. I feel like I've tried so many times, but I've always failed. And I've always been reminded again of how disoriented and lazy and selfish I've become. And I hate fighting. I hate fighting you and I hate fighting myself. I feel like it's almost never worth it. Because all of my brokenness is out in the open and I can feel, I feel like we always talk about the same things and it's just another reminder that I can never change. I feel forced to try to defend myself though I know it's all fake, but I can't seem to do anything but yell whatever comes to my mind even though I know I'm just yelling lies most of the time. I wish things were different somehow. I'm sorry again. I don't know what else to say. Do you ever feel like that in your life? Um, you know, and during those times, I feel, I wish almost I was a video game character so I could just, you know, hit reset and just start over. Um, one time, uh, there was an, another incident where I said this line, I feel like I could never change. I use that line a lot sometimes when I'm with VK. And one time in particular, she actually said, you're right, you can't change, but Jesus can change you. If you ever feel like that, remember that the word of the Lord remains forever. 
Even when our emotions are all over the place, even when our convictions aren't there, even when our decisions have led us to, we just feel like it's a dead end, God is with you. And just because we break our promises doesn't mean God will break his promises. And just because we can't change doesn't mean God can't change us. We can be fickle. We can be like grass, like flowers. We might wither and die. Sometimes we grow. Sometimes we wither. But at the end of the day, it's not our consistency that matters. It's God's consistency that matters. And he will be consistent because, of the, because the word of the Lord remains forever. One of my favorite verses is Psalm seventy-three twenty-six, which says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I may fail. I may mess up. I may let people down. I may let God down, but God won't let me down. And God proved that he, can't, that he won't let us down because of the gospel. And the gospel is that God is so committed to us that he sent Jesus down to live with us, to die for us, and to rise from the dead. And though all his friends and family were like the grass of the field, they withered away left and right, they abandoned him when he needed them the most, Jesus pushed on even to death on the cross. So when we are not loving, we can remember that Jesus is loving. When we do not have pure hearts, we can remember Jesus had a pure heart. When we can't hold on, we can remember Jesus is holding on. The world is looking for this kind of love, for this others-oriented, self-sacrificial love. The world is desperately looking for that kind of love, and we see it everywhere. Fifteen years ago, there was a song that came out. Maybe some of you have heard it before. It's called Where's the Love by the Black Eyed Peas. This is one of the first few rap songs that I, I was into, um, if you call it a rap song. And I'm just going to read the chorus. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, here it goes. People killing, people dying, children hurt, and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach, or would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me questioning, where is the love? The song is desperately asking for people to love one another. But, as the Bible says, as Isaiah said, as the psalmist say, we all fail. We are like grass. We wither away. Sometimes we cannot love one another. My flesh and my heart may fail. But the hope of our faith is not that we would love one another, even though we strive to do that every day. The hope of our faith is that God has chosen to love us. And here's the gospel. God practiced what he preached. God turned the other cheek. And God didn't just send guidance from above. He sent his only son from above to live among us and to die for us. Where is love? God has an answer. The love is on the cross where Jesus died. 